Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you've ever thought that investing can be tough or difficult, you're right. Because inherently in our DNA, our own brains, in fact, we're born with a psychological makeup to make investing really, really hard. And the inherent behavioral trait that makes it so difficult is called loss aversion. I'm about to tell you the Jake Moss golf story that proves the point. And then four things we can all do to combat this inherent behavior that makes investing so tough. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. The vast majority of the time, My family is here in Atlanta, but my wife, Lynn, is from Michigan. And for the last almost two decades, we've been going up to Michigan in the summers. Those trips are usually to a place called Holland, Michigan, which is almost directly west. If you're in Detroit or the Ann Arbor area where they live, you drive west and you hit Lake Michigan, which, by the way, looking out over the lake looks kind of like the ocean. You can't see the other side to a little place called Holland. So I would call Holland Southern Michigan almost. And you're on the lake and it's beautiful, but it usually doesn't give us all that much of a break from the heat of the summer. And being in Atlanta, just like most parts of the country, at least in the South, it's 95 degrees and humid on any given day. So for the longest time, we would go to Holland And I never got any heat relief. So we started looking even further north and we found a place north, four hours north of Holland in northern, northern Michigan, near a town called Petoskey that we fell in love with. And it's a heck of a lot cooler. So this past summer, we decided to spend some time there. And it was a lot cooler. I think for the month of July, and I've checked this on my iPhone every day that it's been hot in Atlanta. And I still haven't seen the temperature go above 75 degrees. 75 degrees, sunny, low humidity. So it is perfect golf weather. And when we're in Michigan, I get a little bit of time to play golf with my two middle sons. I've got four boys. The oldest doesn't like golf. The youngest is too young to play golf. But the two middle ones, Jake and Luke, absolutely love to play golf. Luke is 11 Pretty good golf swing, hits the ball pretty well. And Jake is nine, and he doesn't quite hit the ball all that well just yet. He loves it, and we love playing golf together. Usually we do nine holes, which you can do in about two hours. Four hours with Jake and Luke, maybe a little bit much, maybe too many lost golf balls, but I typically do nine holes with them. It's a perfect amount of time. 
So this story has to do with Jake. And again, Jake's nine. Sometimes he hits the ball. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he tops it and it goes three feet. Sometimes he hits it off the toe and it goes directly 90 degrees right. And he gets pretty worked up if this happens, but it happens about 50% of the time. But he still loves it. Still absolutely loves golf. And he's starting at a young age. And he will surely be better than me in no time at all. So on the sixth hole, we came across, so we're at the tee box, and you come across a fairway that has a tree smack dab in the middle of the fairway. It's about 120 yards out, and you, you may be able to go over the tree if you're a really good golfer, which I am not, but they think that I am. And they'd say, Dad, can you hit it over that tree? Can you go over the tree? And my answer was, no way. I said, Jake, that's like for a professional golfer to hit it over the tree. In real life, this is one of these, you got to hit it to the right of the tree or the left of the tree. And it's one of the few instances you don't want to be in the center of the fairway. But I also thought to myself, even if I aim for the center of the fairway, which is normal, and I try to hit the tree, there's no way I'm going to hit the tree. So I said, Jake, I'm, you know what I'm going to do? I can't hit it over, but I'm actually going to aim for the tree because I know I can't even hit the tree. He goes, Dad, I bet you I can hit the tree. <laughs> I said, in the air, can you hit the tree? He goes, yeah, I can hit the tree in the air. Again, Jake, he's, he's excited if he hits the ball 80 to 100 yards, and that's rarely is it in the air. So this thing's 120 yards out. I said, I said Jake, look. He goes, Dad, what if I hit the tree? And I was like, no way, JJ, you're not going to hit. There's no way you're going to do it. I said, if you do, I'm like, here it is. Here's the deal. I'll give you 100 bucks if you hit the tree. Thinking no way he's going to hit it. Now, you might already know where this story's going. He lines up way left. I said, Jake, you're not even aiming at the tree. And he goes, look, I, I know what I'm doing. He hits the best shot of the day. And it just so happens to be straight in the air, middle of the fairway, and he hits the tree trunk dead in the center. It actually bounces right back at us. And of course, Jake goes ballistic. In golf, we call this a Carbajal level celebration. He's running around golf hand in one hand, his fist in the other, like he just scored a goal at the World Cup. And he won the 100 bucks. So I gave him $100 that day. But that's only half the story. The following Monday was our day to go home. And from northern Michigan to Atlanta, it's really a kind of a day and a half drive. Typically, we'll go, we'll stay someplace, and then we'll do the rest. But in this case, when it's time to go home, in my mind, it's time to just go home. So everybody's in the big... American SUV, four kids, our dog Cody, and me and Lynn. And we decided to go 16 hours straight. So, of course, that's a lot of rest stops. It's a lot of these, the blue signs, the roadside rest stops. So you're in and out. We only did one McDonald's stop. The rest was cooler of food and drinks in the car. And we made it. We did it all in one day. took about 16 hours. And we ended up getting home at at something like 1 a.m. And because the kids were kind of sleeping off and on and they're watching their iPads and movies and I was on the phone about 80% of the time to Lynn's dismay. But the kids were kind of wide awake when we got home. 
First of all, it was raining. We had to unpack the car, so we're running back and forth. And after we were done packing, Jake's sitting there in the kitchen. He goes, Dad, this is the worst day of my life. I said, Jake, I know it's not fun to drive 16 hours. I said, but you guys had a pretty decent time. It's not like you were driving. And he goes, Dad, it's not. that's not it. I lost my $100 bill. So evidently, and again, I didn't know this until sitting there with Jake at 1 in the morning. Three hours into the trip, we stopped at a gas station. I'm getting gas. He went in with his brothers to get Skittles and pretzels. And he goes, guys, I got it. I'm going to pay for this. I've got this 100 bucks. And he reached into his pocket, and the $100 was gone. Searching, searching, gone. Well, it turns out that he had hidden the $100 bill to protect it. He was so excited about it and so psyched about this 100 bucks that the bedroom that he shared in Michigan, he put it kind of in the back corner of one of the second drawers, folded it up to try to make sure he hid it. I don't know if he didn't want the dog to eat it, his brothers to rip it in half or whatever it was. He was really, really wanted to protect the $100 bill. In doing so, in the bustle to get everybody out of the house early in the morning, he left it. So the 100 bucks, it's gone. And he goes, Dad, I am so mad. And his eyes started to well up, as maybe I would have been at nine after losing 100 bucks. And I said, so Jake, it was worse to lose the money than it was good to win it? Yeah, Dad, it's kind of confusing to say, but losing it is even worse. So here we are, this nine-year-old kid, never traded stocks, and we've owned stocks, but we're not buying and selling and buying and selling and winning and losing. We're, we, he's, a, he's an investor, so we're, own, we're trying to teach him to own stocks for the long run. He's never paid taxes. He's never had to pay a big speeding ticket or any ticket. He's new to money, he's still relatively new to money, and I don't know if he's ever had the feeling of really losing money. But it dawned on me in this very moment just how ingrained genetically from birth, not learned experience. Again, he has not learned this win it, gain it, work, 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 get the money, then lose, lose. He is, just, he is still new to all of this. He is just genetically programmed from birth with this psychological trait that we almost all have. Losing money feels twice as bad as winning money feels good. Again, winning the money was great, but losing that $100 for Jake was twice as bad as winning the $100 in the first place. And behavioral psychologists, investors have done whole studies, and actually there's been a Nobel Prize awarded for some of this work, to verify this. And it's the same thing that you and I face every single day as investors. And it's called loss aversion. There's another way of describing it. It's actually called prospect theory as well. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I've known about loss aversion for a long time, and it's something that we all deal with as investors. But in my mind, I've always thought that we kind of learn that through gaining money, losing money, gaining money, losing money. It turns out that we are 
just 100% pre-wired with this to begin with. Now, the psychologists will call this a, a cognitive bias. If you're really to define loss aversion, it is a cognitive bias that describes why you and I have this pain of losing, or the pain of losing is psychologically twice as powerful as the pleasure of gaining. And it's about money or any sort of valuable objects. If any of that's lost, anything valuable is lost, it feels worse than gaining the same thing. Think about this. I had an Apple Watch, and in the middle of Lake Michigan, it for some reason fell off, immediately sunk, or we were on one of these sailboats where it was impossible to turn around, so it was just gone. Done. And I remember thinking about how mad I was about that. And I remember being really excited about getting the Apple Watch, but now that I think about it, I was way more mad that I lost the watch versus happy when I got the watch. Again, just for some reason, we are cognitively wired for this. And it has a huge impact when it comes to us investing money. And you go through any sort of market sell-off, and this happens over and over and over again. Remember, we know that on average, a typical year has at least a 14 to 15% correction in stocks. Bear markets happen every couple of years, but corrections happen all the time. And every single time, no matter what the new circumstances are, it's always painful to watch your account, your 401k account, go from 100000 down to 90 or 85 or 80 or worse. Or a million dollars go from a million dollars to $900,000 or $800,000 or even worse. And I think actually the bigger the numbers get, a $10 million account inflicts even more psychological pain if you're watching it and it goes down 10%. Well, now that's a million dollar loss at any given period of time. And the market throws this curveball at us that we have to deal with over and over and over again. And it's one of the things that makes investing really tough. It makes us gun shy for getting invested, which typically makes us lose out on returns. And then it makes us gun shy of staying in the market, which very often leads investors to getting out of stocks or selling only to have stocks rebound so that you miss the gain. This genetically programmed problem, which by the way, just makes us human, is the very thing that can ruin our investment rates of return as we end up chasing our own tail. I don't want to get invested, but I'm going to get invested. But now that I'm invested and the money has dropped, I'm going to get out. And then I'm going to not get back in. And we end up in this cycle. And loss aversion, as this cognitive bias, just makes us inherently flawed investors. So the question is, what can we do about it? What's the answer? What can we do about it? And there's four things that you can teach yourself or go through that really do help. And I can tell you, I'm, I'm just a normal human too, even though I've been investing for 25 some years, I still have to practice this over and over and over again to make sure that I don't fall into the same trap. So because it's cognitive and it's ingrained, to some extent, it's like training yourself not to react to touching a hot stove. It's literally in our, in our nature as humans. So it inherently makes investing really difficult. And the only way to combat it is through one, education, two, learning and understanding investment history, three, practice, and four, having some sort of investment plan, financial plan, or investment philosophy you're going to stick to 
or combination of a financial plan and an investment plan. So let's start out with number one, education. I think we're starting with that right here. Education is just here to acknowledge that this exists. You can't deny that it exists. It's just human nature. And understanding this part of our brains and, and how it impacts us as investors. So education is the first step. And today is the start of that. Number two is, is learning about market history, understanding how markets work. So the second part is understanding that as long as you, and this is really kind of a history lesson that most of us inherently know as investors, we have to revisit this over and over again. Understanding that as long as you have a diversified portfolio of high quality companies, and as long as the U.S. economy eventually comes back from getting hit or beaten down, like we've seen over and over and over again, it's painful every time. It's a long journey to repair every time. Then we inherently believe that just like we've seen over the course of history, stocks will follow suit. They get knocked down with a rough economy or a recession, and then they eventually recover. Learning and remembering and reminding yourself about that history is so important. Number three, practice. Literally getting in the game. It's a very rare month that you don't have a period of time where markets get hit. They might get hit 2 or 3% in a day, 3 to 5% in a week. Whoa, that's a big percentage. Wait a minute. My 401k did what? And simply going through those periods of time, and knowing that markets cycle with good days and bad, good weeks and bad weeks, and watching your account drop for a period of time, but then not pulling your hand back from the stove or selling and cashing out, that's practicing. Again, our natural reaction is to do so. Every time we see a sell-off, particularly as we get closer to retirement, we get more and more nervous about the value of our account. But once we've lived through this, a few times or over and over again, we start to really understand that this is just part of the program. This is how investing works. And we get better at holding firm and carrying forward with whatever plan we've put in place. Speaking of a plan, number four, this goes back to identifying some sort of strategy that you believe in and a strategy that you like from an investment perspective. Now, there's a couple of things I mentioned earlier about having a plan. When I say you have a plan, that can take a lot of different forms, but the best way to really think about this is that I have a cash flow or financial type plan that really doesn't focus on the investments. Literally just, hey, here's the money I need. This is what I need to spend. This is how much I'm going to save. These are my assumed rates of return. And this is what it's going to look like between now and then. We've talked about this too on the retirement timeline, which was in the gray zone episode of the podcast. It can be as simple as the retirement timeline that I discuss that I, I like to do for families I work with. And then what are the financial assumptions for income sources, the amount of money I'm going to have following the 4% plus rule when I'm in retirement. Th those are all the numbers. That kind of financial plan that's really cash flow modeled will help you determine or understand, hey, I need $2 million or $3 million or $5 million or $10 million. It's the money nominal part of planning. The other side of the equation is the portfolio that's going to get you there. So the plan of, hey, this is how I like to invest. This is what I'm committed to. And this is what I'm going to stick to over time. 
So the numbers plan and the philosophical investing plan that you're comfortable with, those are the two pieces of the equation that really count as planning. And if you put those together, the very nature of having that roadmap really helps keep you on track and not jumping in and out of the market every time something happens. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Now, I've talked a lot about here on the podcast, in previous podcasts, about dividend investing. In fact, we've done entire episodes on that. Now, of course, you know that if you've been listening to the Retire Sooner podcast, or maybe if you're new, I am very partial to dividend investing or income investing. There's a lot of different things you can call it. Multi-asset class income investing is kind of the technical term that I would describe it as. But if you go back to number seven or podcast number seven, the power of rising stock dividends, that describes why I'm such a big believer in getting cash flow from your investments. I also think that getting some level of cash flow from your investments helps almost give you a distraction from market activity that's up and down and up and down. If you know that, and this takes some time. I, I've, I've had families that I've worked with that come in, like normal humans that want to know, hey, what's the value of my portfolio today and tomorrow and next week and next month and next year? and Or what was it and what is it? Which totally appropriate and makes sense, but because we don't have control over the daily machinations of the market cappuccino effect, which I'll describe in just a second, we have to be able to, in my opinion, to help with loss aversion, we have to be able to focus on something that is steadier. Now, you don't have to, but this is how I think of this. And dividends provide that. So cash flow from dividends is the kind of mechanism that provides a lot of stability in an otherwise very unstable asset up and down in any given day. For example, if you look at the aggregate number of dividends paid in, back in 2019, it was about $59 in total for the S&P 500. If you look at the year of that got hit with COVID, where the economy shut down for almost a whole quarter of the year and not fully reopened for a lot of the year, Companies in the S&P 500 paid out about 58 bucks in dividends. So it was virtually the same level of dividends. Not quite, because there were some, some dividends of suspensions and some dividends were cut. But by and large, dividends stayed really steady, even in a year where we had literally one quarter of the entire year was, was closed down. And then here we are, by the way, in 2020, and now dividends are back on the rise. And we've seen far more dividend increases than we've seen dividend cuts. But the point here from a psychological or becoming a better investor perspective, if you're able to focus in on something that is largely steady, I think it's really helpful for you long-term as an investor. And the families that I've worked with for many years, again, they start out as, hey, I want to know what the value of this is in any given day, week, or month. And then they slowly or eventually migrate to, mm, I want to know what my what my income is going to be this quarter? I want to know what the cash flow is going to be. What are the checks I'm going to automatically receive from all the different stocks I own? And what does that add up to? What are, what's the interest I'm going to receive for all the different bonds I own? What about the distributions I have from closed-end funds or REITs or real estate investment trusts or energy companies that pay out distributions? In any given quarter, that adds up to what? Oh, that adds up to 20 grand this quarter. 
Well, that's what matters to me. Not did my $2 million go to 1.9 or 2.1. Again, we want the value to rise over time, of course. But that just doesn't happen in a straight line. Dividends are much closer to this steady, steady flow that not only can pay the bills, but also helps you sleep better at night. Now, another question that I, I've, gotten, I've gotten around this same topic, and this was spurred anytime the market sells off dramatically, is that why does the market act so bipolar? You know, if you've got all these long-term investors, Wes, then why are stocks up and down 2 or 3% in any given day? Like, how does that happen? Well, it's because the market, to me, resembles kind of this cappuccino, meaning that about two-thirds maybe three quarters of the cup is filled with coffee. Those are your stable investors. And about a quarter, the foam on the top, those are your active traders. And those are the algorithmic traders. Those are the day traders sitting at home. Those are the hedge funds that are buying and selling in any given day. So there is a big chunk of the marketplace that, the let's call it the foam on top of the cappuccino, that does tons of movement. That are They're in stocks in the morning. They're out later in the day. As soon as bad news hits, they'll have algorithms that read 4,000 newspapers all in one day. And it'll count up the negative words and count up the positive words that are economically focused. And if it's a greater portion of negative, they'll immediately, the program says, sell, sell, sell. And if the preponderance of words are economically positive, the algorithms will say, bye, bye, bye. And we end up with a portion, and it's not an insignificant portion of the overall marketplace, that is very active. And they're either piling in and buying more or they're running for the exits all at the same time. That layer of investors, not, let's say, you and me who own good, high-quality companies, that we're going to own these until something really dramatically changes, which is not very often for a good, high-quality company that you understand and own. We're not running for the exits every time there's a hiccup, but the traders or that foam on the top of the cappuccino, they are. And that's why you see these almost bipolar movements of the market. Huge up days, huge sell-offs because of what I call the cappuccino effect of stock trading. Again, if we understand that piece of the equation, that not the whole marketplace is long-term investing, like you and Warren Buffett and me, we might be. But you also might say to yourself, well, I don't want to be one of those traders, but I also need to at least understand that that's a huge part of why we see such big swings on any given day. That's part of steps one and two. Education is understanding loss aversion and two, learning market history and understanding how markets work. That starts to give you this understanding of just why we see these big movements. Then we got to practice this, literally get in the investment game, live through these sell-offs, live to fight another day, live to not jump back 50 feet when there's a little bit of bad news, and then have some sort of investment plan. Again, I'm partial dividend investing, but you may be fine with private equity or real assets or commercial real estate. And whatever that particular philosophy is that you believe in and you understand, that in itself along with some sort of cash flow plan or retirement timeline, however you want to do it, put those together and you've got a really good shot at getting this right. And that's what we're here to try to do. Retire Sooner podcast, there's just an endless amount of topics that we can talk about and interviews that we can do 
But at the core and the fundamental foundation of all of this is we've got to be good investors. We've got to understand what we're trying to achieve. And if we can understand the limitations we were just inherently born with, literally my nine-year-old Jake, born with this, clearly, twice as sad to lose a $100 bill than it was to win the $100 bill. That's just pre-programmed. It's in Jake. It's in you. It's in me. It's pretty much in all of us. It's called being a human. And all we have to do is understand it, and we can sidestep the negative impact it has on us on our journey to retire sooner. Hey, y'all. This is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. This podcast is provided to you as a resource for informational purposes only and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. It is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment or financial planning considerations. Please refer to the full disclosure in the podcast description for any additional information information.